0: Good evening everyone, it sure is good to see you, and as we open the word of God tonight we'll be in Revelation chapter 12, and excited about this study as we continue to unpack the book of Revelation, the apocalypsis, the revealing of Christ, and the revealing of the end, and uh, it's an eye-opener, isn't it? It really is, and it's good for some of us who've been through this before to go back through. There's nothing wrong with having to go back and rethink the things that we learned when we were younger, and uh, I I believe Revelation fits any age, any culture, at any time, and so it's a joy to be in this book. Let's begin with prayer. Father, tonight we do, we rejoice over your word. We rejoice that the word never returns void. We rejoice that, God, your word is able to cut down to the very spirit and soul and divide a man's heart open, that he would be able to see and understand things that in the flesh we'd never understand. But by the Spirit, He makes it alive. He brings it alive. He inspires us, enlightens us to the truth of the Word of God. So Lord, tonight we're thankful for it. We pray that you just bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Now, let me just set up chapter 12 for you, because there's a little bit of a... It, it, it's, it, all of a sudden, John begins to, he begins to share what he's seeing, these signs, these wonders. And he kind of lays it out for us. And so we're going to take a look at this. The first of the seven signs that John records is this one that I just read for you, this great sign. He said it's a great sign. In other words, it's a, it's a uh, giant sign. It's a big one. This is a big one. And he's, he's describing a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her, on her head a crown of 12 stars. Um, this is the beginning of a three-chapter look at seven different uh, signs that are introduced, okay? Uh, let me give these to you. If you got your pen, I'll go slow so you can write them down. But there are seven signs that John is going to reveal to us as he records them, and they're in chapter 12, 13, and 14. Most of them, five of the seven, are in chapter 12. So we're gonna cover five of them tonight. I'm not sure we'll get through all five completely, but we'll We'll mention all five. Then, then chapter six or chapter thirteen and fourteen, you cover the beast out of the sea and then also the beast out of the earth. So here they are: number one, the woman, the woman. That's the first sign. And these are not real. These are not to be taken literal, or literally. These are represent representations. And the woman, if I'll just go ahead and give it to you now, even though we're going to study it and see it. I believe the woman is a representative of Israel. So we're going to study that tonight. We'll probably spend a good amount of time on it. And then number two, the dragon. That's a representation of Satan. Okay? Now, here's what I mean. Satan is not an actual, literal dragon that has fire coming out of his mouth, okay? That's a... It's a symbol of, it's a sign of Satan that he uses. Okay, then there's the male child. And when it says male child, it's referring to Messiah, Jesus. And then the fourth one is the angel Michael. Uh, Michael would be the head of the angelic host. He was, the cherubs were, were angels that are in the very presence of God God and they are mighty angels, and He is the head of the angelic host. Then the the fifth one is the offspring of the woman. So the woman, and then the offspring of the woman. And that represents Gentiles who come to faith in the tribulation period. All seven of these signs are going to be representing something inside the great tribulation, inside the seven-year period. And so the offspring of the woman are the Gentiles, okay? Then then the sixth one is the beast out of the sea, and that's representation of the Antichrist, the beast out of the sea. And then number seven, the last one, is the beast out of the earth, and that's the representation of the false prophet who promotes the Antichrist. He promotes the beast, So, the beast out of the sea is the Antichrist. The beast out of the earth is the false prophet who promotes the Antichrist. So, that's what we're going to cover over the next uh, three chapters. And we'll try to get through all of chapter 12 tonight. So, let's get started back at verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. And here's the first part. A woman clothed with the sun. Because John clearly said this is a sign don't take any of these seven signs literally. They're not to be taken literally, okay? It's likely that this woman represents religious systems on the earth. If you really want to know what it's about, it's probably this woman. In fact, throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when we see a woman, it usually represents world religions to some, to some degree religious systems of man, okay? And so that's what we see here. Let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament, we have Jezebel, and she is associated with a religious system, okay, she, promoting false uh, teachers and teachings. That's, that's uh, in Revelation 2.20. It speaks of Jezebel. Jesus spoke of Jezebel. He spoke of a church as having that Jezebel, a religious system where False teachings are promoted and put up, okay? Another example would be the great prostitute that's mentioned uh, in association with false religion. That's, we're going to study that later. That's in Revelation chapter 17. And then also the bride is associated with the church. So there's these, when a woman is mentioned, oftentimes it's associated with religious systems, okay? Now what's interesting is that this woman And our text has been associated with many different religious ideas. Many different religious ideas. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So, she's representative of many religious thoughts, man-made thoughts, that rise up against the thought of God through Jesus Christ. Um, Let me give you another Example of this woman theme with religion, okay? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, claims that the woman in this text that we're reading in Revelation 12 is actually referring to Mary. That it's referring to Mary, okay? That she is stand and, and she's standing, you know, uh, well, she's, she's got this, she, she's known as, in the Catholic Church, she's known as the Queen of Heaven. The Queen of Heaven. And uh, Mary Baker Eddy, remember Christian scientists? They believe that she was the woman spoken of in Revelation chapter 12. That Mary Baker Eddy is the woman. Uh, You ever notice in some Roman Catholic uh, artwork, when you look at some of the art, how Mary is standing on a crescent moon? She's standing on a crescent moon. She has 12 stars around her head. They're getting it from this passage. They've they've applied that to Mary, okay? Let me just, for a second here, talk about this. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Scripturally, this woman clothed with the sun should be identified as representing Israel. If you go back, we're not going to do it, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 11, you find the dream of Joseph. And in that dream, the sun represented Jacob, the moon represented Joseph's mother, Rachel, and the 11 stars were the sons of Israel, which bowed down to Joseph. But in this sign in Revelation that we just read this evening, there are 12 stars, not 11. And here's why. Because Joseph is now among the other tribes of Israel. Okay? So, the identity of the woman is most likely Israel, the 12 tribes that came out of Jacob, okay? And there are other Old Testament passages where Israel or Zion or Jerusalem, those all are speaking of the holy city, right, is represented as a woman. Did you know that? Israel represented as a woman. Jerusalem represented as a woman. Uh, Isaiah, let me give you three passages, You can or four, three or four, Isaiah 54, 1 through 6, write that down. Isaiah 54, 1 through 6. Uh, Jeremiah 3, 20. Ezekiel 16, 8 through 14. And Hosea 2, 19 and 20. Let me read them again for you. Isaiah 54, 1 through 6. Jeremiah 3, 20. Ezekiel 16, 8 through 14. And Hosea 2, 19 through 20. Now, verse 2 in our text, Revelation 12, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So let's remember that the purposes of God regarding the nation of Israel was that through Israel, the Messiah would come. And so this is a reference of that, okay? As we read in our Matthew series uh, the last two weeks, Messiah was to be of the seed of Abraham, Of the seed of David. And Matthew proves that he came through that lineage. Okay? Of all the nations of the world, God chose the nation of Israel as the nation that would bring forth the Messiah. Okay? They reject. What's sad is, he chooses them and they reject him. (laughs) They're the nation that's rejected Christ, the Messiah. And Remember the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 21 about the Jews who persecuted the prophets? Let me take your Bible, turn to Matthew 21. Let's look at this. This is interesting. This is Jesus who's speaking to the Pharisees, and he actually uh, he, 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 he addresses, or he addresses the, the Pharisees, I'm not speaking directly, but he's addressing them in this parable. He's addressing the fact that the Jews have rejected Messiah. That's what this parable is about. So let's just read it real quick. Matthew 21, verse 33. 21, 33. It says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So he got everything set up. Then he hired some tenants to live there and take care of it, and then he took off on a trip. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. So the guy who owns the the fields and owns the property sends his own servant to go and collect the harvest, and three guys get beat up or killed. Okay? Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to Jesus, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants uh, who will give him the fruits of their seasons. And Jesus said to them, you're absolutely right. Here's what he said. Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders reject, rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits." And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now you talk about making the Jews mad. Jesus just did it. He called them out. You're the ones that have rejected Messiah. He is the one that the Father sent and you've rejected Him. Who were the other servants that He sent before Messiah? The prophets. What did the Jews do to the prophets? They put them to death. They stoned them to death. They killed them. Okay, so we have the woman Israel ready to bring forth the Messiah, the Son of God, and we have the dragon Satan who's ready to devour him as soon as he's born. Look what it says in verse 2 She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Here's that second sign. Now, behold, a great red dragon that would be Satan with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, uh, seven diadems his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it remember from our study on Sunday how Herod okay Herod gets word from the wise men that the king of the Jews has been born and so he asked his own scribes okay what, what, what's going on here well the scribes knew the word and they told him where the king of the Jews was going to be born, in Bethlehem. He goes back to the wise men and said, it's going to be in Bethlehem. And oh, by the way, when you get there and see him, on your way back, stop and tell me where he's at exactly so I can go worship him. Right? Um, that, that's a picture. If you want to see a picture of Satan using his his tactics, his deception to try and kill Christ, that's it. We studied it on Sunday. When you found this little child, come back and tell me about it so I can come and worship him also. The wise men, of course, by God, did not go back that way, so they did not give Herod any information. And so what did Herod do? He went into the region of Bethlehem with a decree that all children, or all males, two years old and younger, be put to death. There's Satan at, as Israel's giving birth to Messiah, sweeping his tail trying to devour Jesus Christ. Verse 4, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. kind of a side note, but it's, it's worth looking at. The angels are often referred to in the Bible as stars. And here in our text, it indicates that when Satan rebelled, a third of the angels rebelled with him. That's why I I believe that there were probably three archangels in heaven. And one would be who? Michael? Another would be who? Gabriel? And the third? Lucifer. These are three archangels. Now, I have no scripture to base what I'm about to say on so, it's, it, I'm just throwing out a possibility, okay? So, receive it that way. Um, three angels, God possibly giving delegated authority to each of the three, one-third of the angels in heaven. And Lucifer decides that through his pride, his sin of pride, that he can ascend above God. And when God deals with him directly... Uh, He takes a third of the angels, possibly the ones that he had authority over. And they were under him, and he took them, and they went. So, can I prove it? No, I cannot. Is it possible? It is possible. And let's leave it at that. Let's not try to make a sound doctrine out of something we can't be sure of, right? Uh, But it's interesting that Satan was a perfect model citizen in heaven. When God created him he was a perfect model citizen. The Bible says Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 17. Ezekiel is prophesying and he, he shares that Satan was or Lucifer was perfect in wisdom, he was perfect in beauty, he was perfect in all of his ways until the day pride found him. And that's when he rebelled. That's when he rebelled. When Lucifer rebelled against God, those angels under his authority probably joined him in that rebellion. And so now uh, Satan has access to this earth. He is the prince of this world. He does rule in the heavenlies. God's given him a period of time where he has uh, this ability to do things uh, to affect us, to affect this earth. And now it's interesting. In Isaiah 14, it tells us that the pride filled his heart. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 14, 14. Here's what it says. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So Satan's thinking, I can, I can conquer God. I can be like Him. I can serve, and, or He can serve me. And, of course, God cast him down. Here's why. Let me tell you why. Because while, while the angels are all uh, alike in their abilities, uh, bad angels that fell with Satan have the same kinds of abilities that good angels that stayed in heaven have. And in the end, in the tribulation, there's going to be a war, a battle in the heavenlies with these angels back and forth. And it's going to be a pretty even fight. Satan would be uh, on somewhere on the same par as Gabriel. But Gabriel leads his angels into a victory. They're going to they're conquer. Some people try to put Satan somehow on the level of God. That is ridiculous. Satan is a created being of God. He is nowhere near God. God's orchestrating everything that we're reading in Revelation. He's orchestrating everything that happens in this world. God knows about it. He allows it. So he has ultimate understanding of it. He is sovereign. There's no getting around that. And so, uh, but that, that's, we see this dragon trying to take out Christ even as an infant. And we read about that on Sunday in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. So, let's keep moving if we can, uh, where it says, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Seven heads and ten horns represent great power, and the seven diadems, it represents this, res- this presumptive claim to royalty. Satan is trying to make a claim that he, is, he should be king. Um, he's going to learn pretty clear in the last days, that ain't going to happen. Okay, he's going to be soundly defeated. But that's what he's doing. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child. Remember what we said the male child is? Jesus. Who, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, in that verse, you have Jesus' birth. She gives birth to a child, a male child. You have the end of his life. He's going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to His throne. You have the whole picture of Christ in His relationship to the world in that one verse. Okay? It speaks of His beginning. It speaks of His end. And when I say end, I don't mean eternally end. I mean the the earthly ministry end. Okay? And then He comes finally back and He establishes His throne forever. Praise God for that. So he will rule the world with a rod of iron. Where do we find that in the Scripture? In Psalm chapter 2, it speaks of him ruling with a rod of iron, the, the Messiah. And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, it speaks of ruling with a rod of iron. By the way, those who think the woman is representative of the church have a real issue to overcome here because the church didn't give birth to Jesus Christ. Okay? Christ so to speak, gave birth to the church. He, he's the one who built the church. Amen? So when you try to take and apply these other possibilities for the representation of the, of the woman, really the one that fits is Israel. And we're going to see that play out even more. It'll be confirmed over and over again as we go forward in Revelation. Uh, many today, though, let me just tell you, many today are caught up believing Mary is this woman in Revelation chapter 12. And and the reason that they believe that is because the Catholic Church has created a false teaching. It's it's heresy to say that Mary is a god, that Mary is the queen of heaven. If you want to know what it is, it's Mary worship. It's taking worship off of God and placing it on a created being of God. Not even the angels would allow us to get away with that. They're not to be worshipped. And I know there's people that do that too. We're, we're just destined to find something we can worship. And so that's why the Scripture says so many times in the prophets and other places, it talks about how we'll take a piece of wood and carve it and, and take it to the, you know, the to the silversmith and let him drop some silver on that thing, and before you know it, we've got our little God that we're going to worship. That thing can't talk, it can't see, it can't move, it can't do anything. With some of the wood from that carving, we took it and threw it in the fire to keep us warm. And the other piece we set up on the mantle to worship. How stupid of man. What an asinine thought. And yet, that's what man does. That's what we do. And that's what they're doing with Mary. Building her up. Here's the saddest thing I've ever thought about when I think of this Mary worship. Think about the millions of people who have prayed to Mary. And she's never heard a single prayer. She doesn't even have the capacity to hear those prayers or to do anything with the prayers. I'm telling you, I've got like a three-part teaching on Mary worship that I gave probably about ten years ago. I'm going to pull that out at some point. We're going to do it again. But there is some messed up stuff regarding Mary worship, and many people today are caught up in it. Many of your friends are caught up in it, my friends. Uh, The Catholic Church addresses Mary worship this way. They use the Latin dulia, The worship of the saints and angels, Latria, the worship of God, and Hyperdulia, the worship of Mary alone. And that's the hierarchy in worship that the Catholic Church has come up with between Mary and God. It's false because the Greek word dulia dulia and, and Latria are synonyms. They don't distinguish differences in worship at all. But they're creating these differences. They have falsely and heretically made a way for Mary to be worshipped. It's so heretical that they teach that she is believed to hold the sovereign authority of God. Here's what people are taught. This is why you pray to Mary. Because Mary possesses the mercy that you need in your prayer. They, They teach this thing that Jesus really doesn't have the same degree of mercy that Mary has the same degree of grace that Mary has. They pull it out of John 4 where at the wedding feast, Jesus turns water to wine. His mother tells him, do this, do this. And so at first he says, what, what are you doing? Why, I have no part in this. And then God leads him to do it, to, to, to turn water to wine. They take that passage to mean that Jesus takes orders from his mother. So if you want mercy or grace you pray to Mary, and she will go to Jesus and tell Him what to do. Now, I'm telling you, that's what what they believe. That's the teaching. It's sad how many people believe that, that she has some kind of a, a sovereign authority over Jesus Christ. In fact, in the celebration of the Marian year, Pope Pius XII gave the church's view of the Virgin Mary in a prayer. Let me quote you his prayer. This is what he said. Mary, we adore and praise the peerless richness of the sublime gifts with which God has filled you above every other mere creature from the moment of conception until the day on which your assumption into heaven, he crowned you Queen of the Universe." He goes further. O crystal fountain of faith, bathe our hearts with your heavenly perfume. O conqueress of evil and death. Now she's a conqueror of evil and death. Inspire in us a deep horror of sin which makes the soul detestable to God and the slave of hell. She's the one who does the convicting, no longer the Holy Spirit. The queen of the universe does it. Then tenderly, O Mary, I'm still, this is, this is a direct quote. Then tenderly, O Mary, cover our aching womb, convert the wicked, dry the tears of the afflicted and the oppressed, comfort the poor and humble, quench hatred, sweeten harshness, safeguard the flower of purity, protect the holy church. All of this ascribed to the mother of Jesus. The, ch- the church refers to her as Theotokos, okay, or Theotokos, God-bearer. Their belief is that she gave birth to God. She gave birth to God and therefore is to be elevated and adored. What a grievous misconception. She gave birth to Jesus in his humanity She didn't give birth to God. God didn't need to be brought alive. He was already alive. It's ridiculous. She was simply the delivery system for God's entry into this world. In verse 6, it says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. It's not talking about Mary. It's talking about Israel, that in the tribulation... When Antichrist enters the temple, offers up a sacrifice that is detestable to God, and then declares that he is to be worshiped as God, Jesus made it clear you need to run for the hills. Get out of here. And that's what he's talking about. Israel is going to run into the wilderness it says fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days she's gonna be nourished during that period of time the last three and a half years of the tribulation so she's persecuted by the dragon the woman is protected by God in a prepared place for one for 1260 days they they asked Jesus what will be the sign of His coming? What will be a sign of the end? And here's what He said in Matthew. Write it down or turn if you'd like. Matthew 24, I'll wait for you. Go ahead and turn, I'm gonna get a drink of water. Matthew 24, verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 15. This is Jesus' answer when they ask, what's the sign of your coming? What's the sign of the end of the days? He says in verse 15 of Matthew 24, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, you need to understand that even Jesus recognized the prophecies given through Daniel were speaking of the end. Okay? And He he said... When you see these, the, the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So what is the abomination of desolation that Jesus spoke of and that Daniel prophesied? Well, when the temple is rebuilt, and it will happen now... We don't know what kind of temple, if it's, if it's more of a temporary temple, one that can be put up quickly, or whether it's a full-scale temple, we, we just don't know. Um, but when that temple is rebuilt, the Jews will worship in the way they did in the temple in the Old Testament. They will offer animal sacrifices again. Now here, I want you to think about this, this is pretty interesting. Um, We know through Christ in the Sermon on the Mount that He came as the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, we are no longer under the law. We are under Christ who fulfilled the law. Okay? So we're not looking to the law any longer. We look to Christ. In fact, it says that the Spirit gives life and the law, what? Death. You're not going to live... By the law, the law simply points you to Jesus. The law points you to Messiah. though all the law does is point out that you're a sinner. And every time you sin, it's the law that makes you guilty. It reveals your guilt so that you can see, I need a redeemer, okay? Because I'll never be good enough to live the law. Christ came and he fulfilled the law, so that he could take on our sin as a propitiation. Okay, now understand that in the last days, in this great tribulation period, the Jews are going to run for the for the mountains. They're going to get away and hide until the very end. Uh, but before that happens, they're going to go back to the law. They're going to worship again in the temple. They're going to practice the Old Testament. Uh, practices of animal sacrifice in the temple. They're going to leave what they have today as a Day of Atonement, which is what? Yom Kippur? Where you simply go in your bedroom and you don't eat for a day and you just think about Jesus. Or, think yeah, yeah I wish. You think about all the good things that you've done. And have I done enough good? And then next year I want to do more good than, than bad. And that's their day of atonement now, under the rabbis. But they're going back to the temple, where they're going to offer animal sacrifice. You and I have been set free from the law. They're going to go back to the law. You know why? Because, again, the law is going to point them to Christ. And in the end, there's going to be an outpouring of Jews coming to Jesus, unlike anything the world has ever seen. So the law's still going to play a part. Not for us, but for the Jew because they're still thinking that somehow the Messiah hasn't come. And so let's go back to the law and let's practice the law. Now, what's interesting is it says she, the woman flees to the mountain wilderness to a place prepared by God where she will be fed for 1,260 1, days or three, the last three and a half years of the seven-year cycle of tribulation. Now, some believe this place is... The mountain wilderness, known as the Rock City of Petra, and it's located southeast of the Dead Sea, about a hundred miles south of Jerusalem. Okay, it's 26 feet, uh, 2600 feet up in the air, and it's surrounded by mountains. Now you would think, okay, he said you're going to go to the mountains in the text in, in Re- Revelation. Well, Jerusalem's 2400 feet up. This is 26. There's not really going up to the mountains, is it? Yeah, but to get to it, you've got to go over mountains. It's surrounded. This Petra, this rock city, is surrounded by mountains. And it's Isaiah that gives us this, this insight. And so it's plausible that it is this area that we're talking about. Let me, let me share with you. Isaiah 16, God tells Moab, which is present-day Jordan, which is south of, of, of Judea, okay? Open up your borders, listen to this quote, this is uh, for the Messianic, listen, open up your borders and receive my people, shelter them in Petra until the indignation, in the Hebrew indignation is the same word for tribulation, until that indignation is complete. Now, does that mean we know for sure? No, we do not. But it's possible. It's possible. You say, okay, How is God going to sustain a people in a desert wilderness kind of a land surrounded by a mountain? How is He going to do that? You know, for 1,260 days, three and a half years. Um, He did it before, for 40 years. I think He can handle three and a half. What do you think? He brought manna before? Who's to say that God's not going to provide manna for them in those days? Kind of exciting when you think about it, you know? So... Uh, verse 7, now war arose in heaven. Now we're getting back to this concept of the angels and their role in the end. A war rose in heaven. And when it says heaven, you know, there's three heavens. So it's not saying that it, this war happens in the throne room of God, the third heaven. It's most likely outside of the throne room. And it's, it, it very well could be in the second heaven, which is our, you know, our outer space. Uh, the universe that we know of, okay? But anyway, there's going to be this war. And it says in verse 7, Michael and his angels fighting against Satan, against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. So now again, who is equal to Michael in terms of the, when they were created as angels? Lucifer was. So now Lucifer and Michael are going to have it out with their angels, Okay, but, but listen, Lucifer has a third, Michael has two-thirds of the angels. Um, God doesn't ever, listen, God never loses at anything. If you're going to take on God, you're in serious trouble because God has foreknowledge, he sees past, present, and future all at the same time, and God just doesn't set himself up to be, to be duped. Satan cannot dupe God. I'll tell you how. What I this this again is just me thinking. This is not the Bible, so I always try to be careful with that. I don't want people to walk out of the room. Where Greg showed us in the scripture that no, I did not. This is my my thoughts on it. When do you think Satan knew clearly who the Son of God was? Remember, he can't create anything. He doesn't have the same powers as God. So when did he learn that that Jesus was God? Now, he could read Scripture, okay? He knows the Word, so he he knew what region, he knew what city, that he would be raised in Nazareth. But did he know specifically which child? His His baptism. When the Father audibly said, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. and What happened right after that? Jesus goes out in the wilderness, guess who shows up? Now I know who you are. My point is that Satan can only do what God allows him to do. And so he's going to go into this battle with Michael, and he's going to be defeated. He's not going to win. In fact, it says in verse 8, But he, the dragon, and his angels, they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Which probably bothers some of you if you think through that a little bit. That means that up to right now, Satan has, he can, he's in heaven. He can get to heaven. And he can. Does that bother anybody here? Does that mess with your theology a little bit? Have you been taught that in the presence of God, he can't be in the presence of evil? Uh, excuse me. Remember Job chapter 1? When God literally is having a conversation with Satan. That's how the whole temptation of Job came about. They were having a conversation. Job still has, or uh, Satan, Lucifer still has access to move around. Now, limited access. He can't do anything behind God's back. He's never done that. He never will. Aren't you glad? Amen? <laughs> but he, he has access. In fact, Ephesians 2.2, 2, uh, it describes him as the prince of the power of the air. It also says that he, in Job, let's just turn there. Job chapter 1, look at verse 6 in Job 1. I'll let one of you read it. So go to Job chapter 1 and go to verse 6. And read it down to verse 12. Somebody read good and loud for us. Somebody with a booming voice. Now there was a day when the son of God came to present before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Go down to verse 12. I keep reading. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered to the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Hmm. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and eskeweth. Mm. So, a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was there. So, so we, we just need to understand that, that at this present time, uh, he is the prince of this air. But he is going to be neutered big time. And he's going to be taken out by God the Father. I just love what Christ the Son is going to do. He's going to win in the end. Amen? Amen. I mean, the battle's already won. We know that. So, it's a battle between equals. Uh, but Satan, in no way, is God's counterpart. Okay? God has no counterpart. And and He is above all because He is the creator of all. Now... Um, There is in Scripture another conflict between Michael and Satan that's mentioned, and that's in Jude Jude chapter 1. Get that? Jude is just one chapter. Uh, Verse 9 in Jude, Satan wanted to prevent the resurrection and glorification of Moses because he knew God had plans for the resurrected Moses. What was the plan? Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah, Moses, Jesus. Peter was there. He experienced it. He saw it. And so God had plans, and so Satan tried to thwart the plan of God and do something with the body of Moses. And there was a battle that waged between Michael and, and uh, the enemy. And, of course, we know what happened. God got what he wanted because Moses was there on the day of trans- on the Mount of Transfiguration. So th- this, this battle in the heavenlies, um, some Christians think they're fighting that battle in the sense of a material battle somehow. For us, there's no longer a material battle. For us, the battle was won on the cross. We have, we're victors now. We're more than conquerors, the scripture says. But when it comes to angel versus angel in the end, there's going to be a battle. Maybe it's a spiritual battle. It's very possible it could be a material battle in your wildest dreams trying to conjure up what a battle would look like, angels going against angels. I don't think you and I even have a clue how to, how to describe that. Uh, but but that's, that's, that's ahead, that's going to happen. Uh, it's, it's described in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So the question is, is it a material or a spiritual battle? Um, I believe it's possible to be a material battle, but not for you and I. We've already won. Okay, Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise God. His di- he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. Right? So a battle among angels might be different than a battle among humans. It's possible that this is a material battle to be fought in a way that we can only just try to imagine, but I don't think we can get there. Verse 9 in the text, uh, Revelation 12, "...and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan." So he does reveal who this dragon is, the deceiver of the whole world. He is the master deceiver. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Boy, Satan is always, every day in our lives, he's trying to deceive us, is he not? He deceives us away from truth. He uses lies to draw us away from truth. And Christians can fall prey to that every day. For example, so something, someone does something and it offends you, it hurts you. What do you do in response? If you walk in truth... The Bible says you go to the person and you lovingly tell them that what they did was hurtful. And the two of you reconcile. But let me tell you what most Christians do. Rather than do what the truth tells us, what God tells us in His Word, we would take Satan's course or Satan's tact. And we are deceived in thinking that somehow his tact is better for us. So what we do is we pout. We walk around and mope and groan. We gossip about the person and what they did. We tell everybody else about what they did, but we don't go to them. When we do that, church, we have been deceived by the lies of Satan. The lies have replaced the truth in our, in our, in our walk. This is a very important thing for us as believers to know and understand how Satan, even as Christians, is constantly trying to deceive us. So somebody wrongs us. Maybe, maybe it's a spouse who wrongs us, and, and it ends in a divorce. It's a terrible, ugly thing, and, and, and it ends terribly. And that person who's been wronged, instead of listening to God, obeying the truth, getting healing... So they can once again love, they believe the lie. The lie says you can never trust anybody like that again. Don't ever open your heart up like that again. And that person goes out, and then a couple years, four years later, they marry somebody else. Only this time, that, that relationship will never have the intimacy that God desires It'll never happen. They be honest with you, the intimacy should be with the Lord. What are you doing, getting married again? You're with the Lord now. Now, if the person was not a believer, I believe Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians ten, and you're able to you're you're, you're set free for the sake of peace, Paul said. So you're able to remarry. But I I I'll be honest, a lot of Christians. We let Satan every day deceive us. We we fall so short of the joy of the Christian life. We can quote scripture inside and out, upside down, but we're miserable. What about the person that it's all about what I do for Jesus that makes me really, that really feeds my soul? That's when I know that I'm close to God. I'm closest to God when I serve Him. Now that sounds okay on the surface, But theologically, that's some messed up stuff. Nobody should ever feel closer to God than when they're sitting with the Lord, worshiping Him. Serving Him is something we do, but what allows me to do with the right heart is that before I did it, I received it. I sat with Him. Now, what's coming out of me is an overflow. And a lot of Christians they know how to do, but they don't know how to receive and sit and be just as happy not doing. i got to be honest with you. When I was, uh, you know, back, man, it's been probably 25 years ago. I was just really hunkering down in ministry, and we were getting a lot of things done. And I, I didn't burn out, but I, my, my leaders were like, hey, you, you need to slow down. And one of my elders said to me, he, he trapped me, he tricked me, stinking sucker. He got me good, too. He said, uh, Pastor, what would happen if you didn't show up tomorrow at the church? I, oh, man, you know, I've got things to do. I've got, I've got meetings set up, and i got to do this and that. He said, oh, so, so if you're not here, God's church can't go forward. Oh, you dirty dog. He nailed me. And so I said, well, no, I know that it would go forward because it's God's church. And he says, why don't you take a week and go off and sit with the Lord and let Him just restore and refresh you? And so I did. I went and I talked with uh, Mickey Evans out at Dunklin Memorial Camp, a drug and alcohol rehab center, 12-month program. No, I did not have a drug (laughs) or alcohol problem. Let me just qualify that. It's just that... If you really want to get down to the nitty-gritty, you go talk to the guys who've been messed up like that. Because, buddy, they, they don't play games. And I sat with Mickey, and he, he sent me out in the woods. And uh, I sat there all day journaling and reading Scripture. And I'll never forget. I've still got that. I've got all my journals, but I've got one I, uh, where I wrote... Um, What I sensed the Lord saying to me, and I didn't hear a voice, so it's not like that. It's just what I sensed, was you love the ministry more than you love me. He nailed me. I was done. Because you spend all your time doing for ministry, but you're not spending much time with me. You're not sitting with me. When nobody's looking, you're not with me. I was deeply convicting. And so that's a lie of Satan, to think that somehow by serving God, that's, what's, that's what it's all about. It's not what it's all about. Worshiping God. Serving is a part of worship. It is not the key to worship. The key to worship is to love God back. Worship Him and have just the same sense of identity and joy in Christ by sitting with him as you would if you went out and worked all day for him. Does that make sense? These are the lies of Satan. This is what the deceiver does. He's perfectly fine with you developing your skills and your gifts and serving in the church day and night for the whole life just don't get too close to God. That's what he does. He's the deceiver of the whole world. But thank God he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, because man does not want the truth, God allows man to be deceived. We've got to deal with that, church. I'm not talking about your salvation being in jeopardy. I'm talking about your daily life, your sanctification. Here we are believing Christ for salvation, and then we turn right around and believe lies for life instead of believing the truth for life. God will allow you to believe some crazy harebrained tale if you want to believe it. He's not going to keep you from it. He gave you the ability to think on your own and to, to make decisions on your own. So if you want to believe some stupid, crazy idea that somehow some, you know, some goop crawled out of a primordial soup and laid on there on the sand, and somehow a speck from the sun got started on its, on its worm body, whatever it is, and then it developed over millions and billions of years into an eyeball. And there are people that be- I'm telling you, the PhDs believe that. I got a new title for PhD, Pentecostal hairdo. About the same. That's about as good as it. for a lot of them. That's all it's worth. Pentecostal. Go get a good Pentecostal hairdo. Um, my mom used to wear one. Man, that bun they put on top of their head. Remember that? I, I remember that picture of you, mom. Our whole family picture. She's got that hair it's popped up like this. <laughs> how many of you ladies understand what I'm talking about? You've been there. All right. It's amazing. It's amazing to me how we believe things that are so untruthful. And so God says, okay, if you want to believe a lie, go ahead. And so what does He do? In Romans 1, He turns them over to a depraved mind. I'm going to let you think and believe the way you want. Go ahead. Have at it. And they start worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, who's to be praised forevermore. Amen. Jesus said in John 5, 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me, and it's true. We, we, we take bits and pieces of Jesus and make our own Jesus. I've got my own cocktail of Jesus, and everybody else has their cocktail. Nobody seems to want Jesus straight for who He is. You say, well, I want that. If you want it, you'd be in the Word reading it, and then you'd be obeying it. And we wouldn't develop these classes of people, and we wouldn't worry about somebody walking in the church who doesn't look the way we look, talk the way we talk. We would just love people the way Jesus does. But we'd also be correcting each other lovingly. We wouldn't just sit back and leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. And I don't, you know, it's okay for you to believe that way as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Jesus, would He put up with that? He said, the reason the world hates me because I declare that it's these are evil. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Wow. That's what we do. We seek glory from each other instead of receiving glory that comes from the Father. So if you don't believe the truth, you're believing lies. This is the deception of Satan. Make sure that Satan hasn't deceived you in turning you away from God and the truth and you end up loving yourself or loving the things of man. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Praise God. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night, listen, before our God. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he's accusing you and accusing me of sin before God all day and all night. He has access to heaven. And he's constantly going on about Greg. And every time he blows his, his steam and gets all upset, oh, Greg, he's messed up. You don't understand. Do You know, here's, this thought came in his mind. I'm just telling you, he's a messed up guy. He's a sinner. And, and God the Father looks to the Son. And the Son who is a son that's been slain. And that Son says, Those sins, past, present, and future, have been washed in me. The price has been paid. The bill for debt or for sin has been paid in full. Amen. No longer is God listening to Satan as he accuses you. But do you think Satan's going to stop? He keeps right on. He keeps right on. Verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. That's real Christianity right there. So we have victory over Satan through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, church, walk in it. (laughs) You've got the victory. You know it ethereally. Now make it real. Walk in it. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, "...or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body." Your old nature is now worthless. Now we count it as dead so that we might live this new life after Christ in the Spirit." Our testimony is that of redemption through the blood of Jesus, the new life, the new nature that we have in Him. No longer is the old man in control. Now, does that old man want to show his ugly head? Yes, he does. Stomp on it. Just, you know, when, you, when you're when you trying to, you get up on a Sunday morning and you had a big week of work and Saturday was a work day too and you're just tired and man, it's raining outside and... It's windy and it just feels good to lay there in that bed. And your flesh is saying to you, you don't need to go to church today. Just lay here. You can, hey, you can watch live stream. You know what you say? Your spirit rises up and says to your flesh, shut up. Know your place. And your spirit commands your body out of that bed. And you get ready to go worship with the people of God and lift up the name of your God. That's your way of telling your, your flesh, you ain't in control no more. And I, I, somebody said to me Sunday, I forget who it was, I'll call them out, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> they said, man, pastor, I, I, I wasn't sure I was going to make it today. This, they, they were talking to me after the service, They said, but I'm telling you, I am so glad I came today. My goodness, did God minister to me. See, there's always a victory for those who press through When you feed the spirit and not the flesh, there is a victory. You feed the flesh, you get instant gratification, so that bed feels good for the next 30 minutes to an hour, maybe two hours you lay there, but then you get up and you're miserable in your spirit because you know you didn't do what pleases the Lord. Now, God still ple—he loves you, but you just missed it. You missed an opportunity to love people and to love God and to be loved by people, and to experience God's love in that service. And we know it. So walk in the Spirit. Don't walk in the flesh. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and our testimony of that redemption is that we have overcome Satan. He has no victory over us. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and let you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So in the tribulation, Satan is going to be cast down, but boy, I'm going tell you something, he's going to go crazy, ape crazy on this earth after people and especially after the Jews. Um, but thank God, God has a remnant that he's going to save till the end and he's sealed them. He's got 144,000 that are sealed. They're going to be evangelizing all over the earth and sharing the gospel, and Satan can't touch them. So, this whole thing, it's like a master chessboard, and here's God looking down, and he knows every piece before it ever moves. I just think about that. God knowing all of the past, God knowing the present. What you know right now, God knows. And he also knows the future. Listen, he sees all of it, past, present, future, right now at the same time. Why? Because from his view, he has foreknowledge. From his view, there is no time and space. He's not limited. See, we can only be in the moment, right? So what happens in this moment is what I experience. What's going to happen in three minutes, I don't know, but I'm going to experience it when I get there. God's like, I'm experiencing it right now. I know what's going to happen in three minutes. I know what's going to happen in three years. I know what's going to happen in 30 years. I see all of it right now. You can trust me. Man, you can trust God, can't you? Amen? So walk in the Spirit. Don't walk in the flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love, and thank You for for how You protect and provide for us. Not just food and covering and that kind of stuff, but Lord... I'm talking about how you provide purpose in our life and you protect that purpose. That purpose that you have, the purposes of God will be accomplished. You will see them through. Oh God, may we desire with all of our heart to walk according to the Spirit and not the flesh and fulfill your purposes in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. God bless you. We'll see you this weekend.